1: It wasn't enough for the oral arguments to trivialize and to express contempt for the harm of stalking altogether. It says staying in cyber life is going to kill you. I, I can't
2: promise I haven't said that. <laughs> come out, come, come out, come out for coffee. You have my number.
1: <laughs> they also go in to say, and let us just be clear about how the real problem today and the real issue today is not stalking; it's sensitivity. It's it's just how darn sensitive people are.
2: We live in a world in which people are sensitive, more hypersensitive about different things now. And Nowadays, people would be more sensitive to that, and people could feel threatened in different ways. We're going to hold people liable, willy-nilly, for that.
0: Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the law and the courts and the Supreme Court. And I'm Dahlia Liffleck, and I cover some of those things for Slate.com. And while this legal beat might once have been, I think, compared to a leisurely ride on the moving sidewalk through the Denver airport, it's now pretty much become that scene from King Kong where everything is just flying at your head and you're waving around your arms like in terror uh, in the course of preparing this week's show there have been a bunch of near misses we plan to focus on the dominion court battle but it settled immediately after jury selection then we talked about attempting to anticipate the outcome of this rolling administrative stay in that Fifth Circuit Pristone case. We talked about discussing yet more revelations about Justice Clarence Thomas's failure to disclose gifts he was given. And then we just decided to focus on one thing that actually really did happen this week for true. Uh, it slid a little bit under the radar in all the speculation, anticipation, and the outrage about the things that didn't happen or could happen. So we are going to focus this week's show on the First Amendment and a case about cyber stalking and harassment on the Internet. It was a case that revealed a lot about how this court thinks about what counts as threatening speech. And a very quick news update. On about 7 p.m. on Friday night, the Supreme Court issued an opinion saying that The For now, broad access to Mifepristone will be preserved. There was a dissent written by Justice Alito. Justice Alito and Justice Thomas both uh, dissented from the decision to stay the order. And we'll know more in the coming days about what happens next. Later on in the show, Slate Plus members are going to get to hear Mark Joseph Stern on that Dominion settlement, on a religious liberty case that came up to the court, on Dianne Feinstein and Blue Slips and all those other things. That conversation with Mark can only be accessed by Slate Plus members. There are lots of benefits to Slate Plus membership, like bonus segments from your favorite Slate shows. And, of course, Slate Plus members listen to all of Slate's podcasts commercial-free, and they never hit a paywall at Slate.com. You can find out more by going to Slate.com slash Amicus Plus to sign up. That's Slate.com slash Amicus Plus. And as we always say, thank you so much for supporting the work that we do here at the magazine. But first... In 2016, the state of Colorado convicted and imprisoned Billy Ray Counterman after he sent singer Coles Whalen hundreds of thousands of messages via Facebook over the course of several years. Some of these messages were harmless. Some suggested she should die. Quote, you're not being good for human relations. Die. Don't need you. Read one note. Quote, I'm currently unsupervised. I know it freaks me out, too, but the possibilities are endless, said another. Whalen repeatedly blocked him from her Facebook account, but Counterman created new accounts and contacted her bandmates about her and suggested to her frequently that he knew where she was and could see her. She, in turn, became so frightened that she stopped publicizing her appearances, at one point hired a bodyguard, and she bought pepper spray. After two years and thousands of messages, Counterman was charged with violating Colorado's anti-stalking statute. A jury found him guilty and sentenced him to four and a half years in prison. The First Amendment does protect freedom of speech, but there are exceptions. Obscenity is one. Fighting words is one. And speech defined by the courts as true threats is another but there is a difference of opinion about whether the test for an unprotected true threat under the First Amendment includes the specific intent on the part of the speaker to actually harm the listener, or whether the standard should be that an objective listener might find the words dangerous. Joining us to discuss this case, Counterman versus Colorado, which was argued on Wednesday at the Supreme Court, is Professor Marianne Franks. She's president of the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative dedicated to combating online abuse and discrimination. She's professor of law and Michael R Klein distinguished scholar chair at the University of Miami Law School and a nationally and internationally recognized expert on the intersection of civil rights and technology. Marianne co-authored a brief in this case siding with the state of Colorado and her most recent book is The Cult of the Constitution: Our Deadly Devotion to Guns and Free Speech. Her second book, Fearless Speech, is set for publication in 2024. Marianne, welcome back to Amicus. Thank you so much for having me back. I just went over the facts of Counterman very quickly. It's a lot. Can you tell us both what his campaign of communications towards Coles Whalen consisted of, and maybe a little bit more about how it affected her? Because I think some of that gets obscured in oral argument in this case.
1: Obscured or sometimes not really taken up at all. Uh, This was couple of years, um, two years or so, of thousands and thousands of messages that were sent through Facebook, through the direct message um, a tool there. And these are messages that Counterman sent to Waylon because he had apparently become somewhat obsessed with her. And this wasn't the first time that Counterman had engaged in abusive behavior using uh, online or other kinds of communications. He'd previously been convicted and served time for threatening his ex-wife and her family members. And discovering that was actually one of the reasons why uh, Waylon, in this case, actually decided to go to law enforcement, uh, even though she had hoped initially that the messages would just stop or that maybe she could just ignore them. And that's a really typical experience of a lot of stalking victims is they they hope that it's just going to resolve itself. And uh, it wasn't until she got these messages that seemed to indicate that he was following her, that he knew what she was doing in a given day or what her vehicle was or when she was out with her partner that she started to get really alarmed. And when she had a family friend who was a lawyer look into the situation, realize that he'd had this really violent past. And at that point, she started really withdrawing from social media because she didn't want to engage with with this person. And he was seemingly under the delusion that she was communicating with him via secret channels. And so she had to be constantly worried about whether anything she said or did anywhere, might be interpreted as a a message of encouragement or communication with him. He was also accusing her of hacking his phone and spying on him and and other kinds of um, uh, delusions. And she's a a musician whose career is sort of taking off, and she's trying to keep in touch with her fans. She's um, opening for some really big names, but she's finding herself increasingly unable to concentrate and to focus on her art, because she's scanning the crowd for this person who, who she's never met, so she doesn't know what he looks like, he could be anyone, he could be a someone in the audience, he could try to come up to her afterwards and she wouldn't know, and she started having panic attacks, and she started getting very depressed and withdrawn, and she was afraid enough that she applied um, for a concealed carry permit because she felt she needed to defend herself, but was very uncomfortable um, with this idea. And eventually she left the state and she more or less withdrew from her career because the stress of this and the worry that this person was out there waiting for an opportunity to harm her in some way was really too much. And so it it really caused her to shut down. It caused her to withhold her own expression. She didn't feel comfortable speaking, performing, contributing to her art, or even going about her daily schedule or living in the, the state where... Um, where she had been. So the impact was pretty dramatic. And for a case that is about free speech and chilling effects and about trying to protect people's freedom of expression, it was striking to note that the oral argument, uh, at least on the part of the justices, they didn't seem particularly interested in the loss of speech and expression that uh, occurred on the part of uh, the victim here, what we lost from her.
0: And Marianne, I just Was very struck by the extent to which the argument is, but he was unwell. He had a mental illness and he was never going to perform on any of these. Case closed. And I I just wanted you, before we sort of talk about the First Amendment doctrine, to reflect on the extent to which that solves the problem here.
1: Right. And and probably more so in the case of stalking than anywhere else, it doesn't solve the problem because – one of the most troubling and sort of intractable problems about stalking is that, you know, you have some stalkers who are fully aware of the wrongness of their actions and that their actions are unwelcome and they're doing it anyway. But you have an extraordinarily high number of people who believe, and and you might even say sincerely believe, that they're in a relationship with the victim, even if they've never met them. They've convinced themselves there's a relationship here or there should be a relationship here. They're entitled to a relationship here. And so they might honestly, with, with great conviction and might might actually be telling the truth to say, I really thought she welcomed my thousands and thousands of messages, even though she blocked me repeatedly and seems scared. It's just that she hasn't seen the light yet. And you know, I'm going to say the magic thing that's going to get her to understand this is all benevolent. Stalkers routinely do things like send flowers and gifts and say innocuous things like good morning or do you want to go out for coffee? And out of context, those things don't sound scary, but when they're coming from a stranger that or someone you have repeatedly told or indicated you don't want to talk to, it's terrifying to know that they can't hear that, that they can't understand that. So the more you put into play this idea that, well, this person just is incapable of an understanding that this is unwelcome, the idea that that somehow resolves the issue for the victim is ridiculous.
0: So before we get to the merits here of the Supreme Court argument, I wondered if you could just set forth the state of the law on quote-unquote true threats and and just give our listeners a sense of what the goalposts are. When we talk about a true threat, Let's stipulate. Those are exceptions to the First Amendment. They're not protected. But where does this doctrine derive from? And how did we get to a world in which we're fighting about the objective test versus the specific intent test? Because it's a world we all live in now, depending on what state we reside in.
1: Exactly. So as you say, there's this exception to First Amendment protection. There's a bunch of different categories, including obscenity and fighting words and incitement. And this category called true threats, which is extremely confusing as a name because it indicates that everything that it covers is threats, which as this case shows, this is a case about stalking, which is legally distinct from a case about threats, right? Those are usually two separate crimes in federal law and uh, also in many state laws. So it's confusing to talk about why it is that in a stalking case, we have to discuss whether or not it qualifies as a true threat, but it's a term of art for this category of exception. And it stems out of an actual sort of threatening case where a person named Watts was talking about his opposition to the war and how he would um, if he got a gun that he would get the president in his sights. And the analysis of this about whether or not he's actually issued a threat against the president turned on, consider this situation, right? So he makes this one statement, and it's in a crowd of people. He makes it to a crowd that laughs, essentially, and nothing happens, right? And and so one, one thing that's clear about the notion of a true threat to qualify as a true threat is that it's not a question of whether or not you actually intend at that moment to carry it out. But it's got to be clear that this is something that is could be perceived reasonably, right, according to the context, as something that was actually intended as some kind of statement of hostility or terrifying intent, uh, or sorry, terror, generally speaking. And you gather that by looking at the circumstances. But in the Watts case, the court didn't really explain much beyond that other than look at the circumstances and concluded in that case that this was not a true threat. And so since that time, the the notion has been invoked, but the contours of it have not really been clear. Is it enough to say, look at the audience reaction, consider that this is happening in public, that it's at a rally, emotions are high, it's one statement and it seems tossed off kind of carelessly? Or do you really have to ask the question, what did that speaker mean? What kind of evidence can we see that indicates that he's not joking, he really wants to terrify the president? So it's just been a little unclear. And there's been a series of cases since that time involving cross-birding and other issues that have kind of circled around this question of what do we mean to say that it qualifies as a true threat? Is it enough to say a person in those circumstances, a reasonable person, not a sensitive person, not just any person, not even the actual target, but just a reasonable person, an objective standard, Is it enough to say, looking at all the circumstances, that a reasonable person would have heard that statement and thought that it was in fact threatening, would have found it threatening? Or in addition to that, do you have to say that plus you have evidence that the speaker intended for the person to be frightened? And so the position that counterman is taking here is that you need to have both, and the position of Colorado is that you only need that objective person standard.
0: And am I right, Marianne, that about 20 states use that subjective intent standard, so it really is, um, it's a hodgepodge. I mean, it's just not clear, and um, we'll talk about Alonis uh, in a minute. That was a 2014 case that purported to raise these issues and resolve none of them, but this case is, at least, we are told, intent on resolving this once and for all, yeah? I think that's the the indication. Okay, so— Before even we get to oral argument, I guess the last question I have is this is one of those First Amendment cases that just turns into a strange bedfellows mishmash, like a lot of, you know, the free speech advocacy groups and a lot of groups that, you know, you tend to think of as being on the side of, you know, vulnerable victims line up uh, behind countermen. And so we have the ACLU and the Electronic Frontier Foundation and the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press, which I've served on, all lining up with that we need the specific intent test. And their concern is that if the court decides that intent isn't uh, relevant, then you're going to live in a world where people are criminally prosecuted for mental illness For posts that they never intended to disseminate, for things that are untethered from the context that they were placed in, and the effect would be just massive. Chilling of all speech, and then on the other side, you have joined others, including another friend of the show, Professor Danielle Citron, arguing that no online harassment is really different; it's unique. It cannot be regulated under a specific intent standard because looking only to what the speaker thinks is actually going to allow stalking and harassment to proliferate. So can you just help listeners who want to know how they should be thinking about a case in which um, both sides make very sympathetic and compelling arguments, how it is that this kind of is the state of play and that folks who are wildly speech protective um, are on, in some sense, the other side from you? Sure. And and a lot of it comes
1: down to a question about whose speech you are mostly concerned about, I think. Those who would argue that the First Amendment demands the subjective intent, this, this very high standard, like the EFF and the ACLU and other civil libertarian organizations, they paint a picture that essentially suggests that if we don't have that kind of very high subjective intent standard, there's just going to be not only prosecutions of perfectly innocent throwaway remarks, especially that were issued over the internet where it's hard to detect tone and, and substance, etc. Not only that, but it's it's not just about the people who will get prosecuted. It's about this chilling effect, as the term goes, that people who would say things that are completely protected by the First Amendment might be chilled from saying things that would be protected by the First Amendment because they're not sure now if it might be interpreted as a threat and mean that even though they didn't mean it that way, that could nonetheless land them in jails. And so the argument is that that's really scary and we have to err on the side of not letting that happen because that's such a terrible prospect that people not only could be prosecuted for fairly innocuous comments, but also that even beyond that, people will just be really nervous about speaking. And then on the other side, you have people pointing out that that whole conversation, as compelling as it sounds, is really disconnected from reality. In other words, there's no evidence that there really is a chilling effect in that sense, that because a law exists against stalking, that allows for prosecution of objectively terrifying threats, that that means that people are constantly censoring themselves and worried about whether or not they're going to get prosecuted. And if you're going to make such a consequential claim about this effect, there really ought to be some empirical evidence to back it up, and there just isn't. On the other hand, when you look at the impact of things like stalking and threats on the victims, the people who are receiving those kinds of terrifying communications, and again, objectively terrifying communications, not just people overreacting to some sort of stray remark, it is documented, well documented, what happens to those victims and how much they have to engage in self-censorship, how afraid they are for their lives, for their, their livelihoods, for their family members, for their friends. Because in stalking cases, you never know where this person is going to show up, what they might do, how violent they might become. So typically, stalking victims will take all kinds of steps to limit their own freedom—their freedom of mobility, their freedom of expression, their freedom to live in the state where they grew up—all of these things are documented. Those are real effects. So when we talk about which one is more important, uh, I think we're really asking a question about, well, whose speech are we thinking about and whose lives are we talking about? Who are we identifying with in this scenario? The potential victim who might be on the receiving end of these communications? Or are we identifying with a potential speaker who's maybe not particularly careful about how they um, express themselves and might lead to something like a prosecution? But keeping in mind that these kinds of prosecutions for stalking, if you, again, look at the actual empirical evidence of prosecutions, the idea that we live in a world where stalking and harassment is over-prosecuted, that there's just too much zealous law enforcement you know, standing up and intervening is absurd because stalking is one of the most underreported crimes, and even victims who do report stalking, there's oftentimes, in almost half of all cases, law enforcement does nothing at all. And so if there's any kind of problem here about the balance between public welfare and individual freedom, the problem is really that we are so under-responsive to the problems of stalking That has to be the diagnosis that we have here if we care about reality, as opposed to abstractions about how speech and prosecutions work. And that the calculation here is not about, oh, did you have to be a little bit more careful about what you said? The calculation is, is she going to end up dead, the victim of stalking, because we didn't intervene? Because the attitude was, well, wait until he does something serious and unambiguous. And far too often, that serious and unambiguous thing is to engage in some sort of physical
0: violence. We are going to pause now to hear from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the
1: frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce
0: platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell.
2: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
0: Let's return now to our conversation with Professor Marianne Franks. So to be clear, the way you're thinking about this says instead of centering or hyper-focusing on the chilling effects for the man who wants to say what he wants to say. <laughs> and we can talk in a minute about sort of the value of that, what he wants to say. And you're saying what's actually invisible in the doctrine is the chilling of those people who retreat from the marketplace of ideas, retreat from having a public presence altogether because they're terrified and that the doctrine doesn't capture that balance at all.
1: Yes. And and particularly when it comes to things like art and journalism and political participation, those are the kinds of things that get invoked by the ACLU and others to say, oh, look at the dangers that this would pose uh, for all of these professions. And then, you know, this is a case about a musician who wasn't able to pursue her art or contribute her art because of the stalking behavior And we have all of this evidence showing that female journalists in particular are being driven out of journalism because of stalking and harassment and threats. We have so much evidence to indicate that the same thing happens to female politicians. Uh, The idea that that it only works in one direction, right? That we have to worry about people feeling not free enough to say uh, harassing or abusive things as opposed to overindulging um, and and carving as, as sort of a as wide of a a path as possible to allow everyone to say what they want to say uh, and not realizing that that, taking that stance and erring on that side means that we're losing women's voices in particular from these really important areas of speech, including journalism and, and art and politics.
0: And can you go back and backfill this case? I know we covered it on the show in 2014. We had a man named Anthony Alonis. He was publicly posting incredibly violent, threatening posts about his estranged wife on Facebook. And I remember we got involved in an entire sort of constitutional psychodrama about the value of rap lyrics at the time, right? It turned into a referendum on rap. But the real issue in some sense in the case was that this guy was very similar to what we see in Counterman, was persistently threatening, violently threatening, or it seemed harm to his estranged wife. And the court took the case up and then just batted it away. Can you remind us what happened in Alonis? Because it feels as though this is the court's do over for Alonis.
1: Right. It it seems that they're trying to address the the door that they left open but didn't close in that case. And the peculiarity of that case uh, was that, exactly as you say, there was speculation or anticipation before the case that this was going to be the Supreme Court's weighing in on the Internet age of speech and giving us an answer about whether things, the rules need to be different when it comes to online communications The particular statute that Alanis was charged under is the Interstate Threats Statute. And the First Amendment concerns that were being raised or the arguments that were being raised in that case were very similar to the ones here, but the statute had a a problem that the court decided instead of reaching the First Amendment issues, it was going to address a problem in the statute in the way that it was constructed. And so what they ended up doing, to many people's surprise, was completely ignoring or putting to one side The First Amendment questions of what does it mean to threaten someone and do you have to have under the First Amendment, uh, that is to say, does the First Amendment require subjective intent as opposed to a reasonable person standard? They focused on this really narrow statutory, what's called a statutory construction question, which is in a criminal statute, the, the court has long held that you should assume that every element of the offense needs to have a corresponding mental state. So if the elements are that you are issuing a threatening communication, the question is, well, there's an issuing part. Like, did you actually send it out? And that that's usually easy enough to say. Was it that intentional or did you do it by accident? But then the part about the threatening communication is, what's the mental state when it comes to the threatening communications? Was it that you knew it was a threatening communication and you sent it? Was it that you knew that a person receiving it would would think of it as being threatening and you sent it? Or was it that you yourself intended for it to be threatening and you sent it? But instead of saying, well, the First Amendment demands that we answer it this way, they said, well, the statute in question doesn't make it clear. When a statute doesn't make it clear, we're not going to assume or read into it the ability to say it's a reasonable person standard. Based on longstanding principles of fairness and criminal law, we're going to assume that some kind of subjective intent was required here, that there again gets tricky because what they mean by subjective intent isn't necessarily it was my purpose to uh, make someone afraid. It could also mean that you knew it would make someone afraid, even though that wasn't your express purpose. And it could even mean that you were reckless with regard to whether a person would perceive it that way and you disregarded the risk that they would. So any of those things sort of count as permissible uh, mental states. If If the If the statute is silent and the court says those are the only permissible states, we're going to not allow for that remaining mental state known as um, reasonableness. It's sometimes called the negligent standard, but the idea that you personally, as the actor, did not have a conscious uh, awareness of how the communication was going to be perceived the court says, if there's there's silence on that in a statute, then we're not going to allow the reasonable person standard to be assumed in. So it's got to be something higher than reasonableness. But court didn't say, how much higher does it have to be? Can it be recklessness, which was suggested by the concurrence, or does it have to be something like knowledge or purpose? But more importantly, the part of the question they didn't answer is, is this a first amendment required kind of qualification, or is it just this quirk of the statute that didn't spell it out? So when the case of counterman comes up, now this question is firmly before the court because the Colorado statute, like many other states, isn't ambiguous about this. It says what the mens rea is, and the the mental state that is at issue in these statutes is that it's a reasonable person standard. And now the question is, is that allowable under the First Amendment?
0: Okay, perfect. Now, then we get to oral argument on Wednesday, and you start tweeting, as the case is being argued— That over and above the issues that are being raised and discussed here, what was striking you was that some of the justices, and you, I think, at some point said, particularly some of the male justices took this chilling of free speech prospect very much more seriously than they seem to take the terrorizing of the victim. And I wondered if we could talk through a few of those moments that stood out to you. Starting with the Chief Justice, let's just listen to the audio, reading some of the messages uh, to laughter in the room. It says, staying
2: in cyber life is going to kill you. I I can't promise I haven't said that. (laughs) How about... (laughs) Come, come out, come out for coffee. You have my number. The content- I think that might sound solicitous of the person's d- development. I mean, if, if we're talking just about what the statements are, how is that? What tone would you use in saying that that would make it threatening? Okay, say this in a threatening way. One of the things he was convicted of it was an image of liquor bottles, and there was a caption, a guy's version of edible arrangements. So again, say, say that in a
0: threatening way. So, Marianne, the first thing that struck you and struck me was, in fact, the laughter in the room, which I know happens and, in fact, is important signaling for all sorts of law review articles when the transcript reads laughter. But tell me what it meant to you that the Chief Justice is reading out some of Counterman's uh, messages when I try to do the fairest construction, this is, of course, context-based, and so he's trying to search for context, but the fact that people are cracking up struck you particularly. Right,
1: because I don't think he was looking for context. When you think about what the purpose might be of reading aloud from some of these—so not so, so not making up, you know, let me give you an example, but taking some of the thousands of messages at issue in this case and reading them out loud completely devoid of context— Not mentioning the fact that they are part of thousands of messages that were sent to a person who had blocked the sender repeatedly, and not mentioning that many of these messages indicated that he was following her and had her under surveillance, and just, you know, cherry-picking some that, taken completely out of context, just sound either innocuous or at least sound ambiguous. And then you read those out loud, and instead of sort of asking, well, how could that be interpreted, you you offer. You offer how it should be interpreted. Essentially, when, you know, that first uh, quotation about cyber life is going to kill you and saying, "Ah, I've said things like that. And that leading to laughter in the courtroom. So not only is this a moment to say, here's the chief justice of the Supreme Court using part of the terrifying content at issue in this case for laughs. So to to get um, some levity out of the courtroom and making the point that, well, it's a funny statement, and maybe maybe it's such a funny statement that it's even even kind of a worthy statement. And that's a very calculated thing for the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court to do, to say literally these statements that not only the victim found terrifying, but that the state of Colorado agreed are in fact objectively terrifying, and that anyone in her position would have found these statements terrifying. The Chief Justice is going to take some of those statements and say, isn't that ridiculous? basically say, isn't that ridiculous that that this is um, something someone would find terrifying? So expressing so much contempt for victims in this situation, and specifically to this victim by reading those specific messages out loud.
0: Yeah, it's so tricky, Marianne. I was reminded of the Savannah Redding strip search case when there was such a difference between The male justices describing the strip search of a high school student and the sort of hilarity ensues and, you know, yuck, yuck, you know, Porky's style humor about what it was like to strip search a teenage girl. And at the time, Justice Ginsburg just palpably on the bench in front of our eyes, horrified that. Laughter is appropriate in those moments. And I, again, I'm trying to be fair and say, oh, it's nervous laughter. This is, you know, difficult material. And we are all in a moment where we're on a hair trigger about what is a threat and what isn't. And so At the same time, I'm so reminding myself of what it felt like in the courtroom when the audience was laughing at something that was objectively terrifying for the recipient of, in that case, the strip search and the ways in which I keep thinking of Christine Blasey Ford's indelible in the hippocampus, right, is the laughing, how uh, laughing in public spaces at moments of great pain in your life is part of the affront in some sense.
1: Yes, I was reminded of the same thing and really you know, struck by the fact that the difference here in some ways was that no justice did push back. No justice did say, hey, actually, there's something really, really troubling about this framework that you're setting up and, and this presumption you have about the innocuousness of the statement and what it might mean for someone who is the chief justice of the Supreme Court to not be troubled by the statement out of context. Well, no kidding, right? But that it didn't, you know, there wasn't any... Uh, visible uh, objection to that. There was no attempt to say, to, to at least mark how inappropriate, it doesn't even begin to describe it, but just how disrespectful, how contemptuous, how how truly, you know, irrelevant in some ways this reaction was. Because what was the point here? Because if the point was to say, well, it's obvious, everyone in this, in this courtroom, that that's not a troubling statement, well, then you're really just sort of proving Colorado's point. If it's obvious that that statement taken out of context in the safe confines of this courtroom is not a threat, Yeah, so why worry about that being prosecuted as a threat? It never would be. But that wasn't the context here. Those aren't the facts here. And why would you try to suggest that 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 is what, in fact, happened?
0: We're going to take a quick break. And more now with Professor Mary Ann Franks. So then we get to what I think is the meat of when your tweets start to feel five alarm fire, which is that we start to have several justices, notably Justice Gorsuch and then Justice Thomas, reflect on the fact that we just live in a time now where everybody is just super thin-skinned and hypersensitive. And, you know, we've got this sense that everybody is so frantic to call themselves a victim that we can't evaluate speech the way we used to. Let, let's play a little audio of Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas.
2: We live in a world in which people are sensitive and, and maybe increasingly sensitive. Um, as a professor, uh, you might have issued a trigger warning from time to time when you had to discuss a bit of history that's difficult or a case that's difficult. What do we do in a world in which reasonable people may deem things harmful, hurtful, threatening, uh, and uh, we're going to hold people liable willy-nilly for that? We're more hypersensitive about different things now, and people can feel threatened in different ways. What if it's now that people are more sensitive that that is now considered the reasonable person?
0: And I think before we dive deep into what it is they're saying, I I just want to ask you what it means when the justices, some of whom have evinced, in my view, hypersensitivity in recent years to other people's speech, saying that, oh, everybody's an eggshell, they're all nuts. There was so
1: much to unpack there when you hear a Supreme Court justice on this particular court saying essentially what becomes at certain a certain point a kind of kids these days kind of argument the idea that if you're going to invoke hypersensitivity in our modern era and not even be embarrassed by the fact that there are members of this court sitting in this in that courtroom exactly as this is being said who have referred to tough questions during their confirmation hearings as high tech lynching right who have shaken their, their their fists essentially during their confirmation hearings and said, "I will get you know revenge um, for the destruction of my character in the because of the questions that they were asked during their confirmation hearings," or Alito saying recently that, "Oh, you can disagree with our decisions, but implying that that there's something uh, amiss with our integrity that crosses a line that's dangerous, right?" So you've got these justices who are saying things that, that are essentially hypersensitive about the words and the questions and the criticism that is quite validly, of course, expressed about one of the most powerful institutions in the United States, and that these members of this court would invoke hypersensitivity and not, not only not think about that, but certainly not mean that. They, they, you know, it's it became clear very quickly When they say hypersensitive and they say we, they don't mean we. They mean you, and you know who we're talking about. And then, of course, at a certain point, Justice Barrett makes it extremely clear who they are talking about.
0: So just tell us about that, because we're going to play the audio in a minute anyway.
1: (laughs) So, uh, you know, you've got Gorsuch is the first one to tee it up to say— uh, taking note of the fact that the Colorado Attorney General um, has uh, used to be a law professor, and, and and sort of sets up the the question by saying, "Oh, you know, probably as a professor, you had to issue a trigger warning sometimes." So, introducing into a an oral argument about a stalking case, this kind of buzzword about colleges and and how sensitive students are and trigger warning. So all of a sudden, that's into the mix. And so that's the first, that's the first indication. And then later on, Justice Thomas saying, yes, people are just so sensitive these days, you can be offended by anything. And then Justice Barrett
2: tries to give all of us a hypothetical to explain what she means. Let's imagine a professor who wants people to understand just how vicious it was to be in the Jim Crow South and puts up behind them on a screen a picture of a burning cross and reads aloud some threats of of lynching that were made at the time. Purely educational purpose in the teacher's mind. But students feel physically threatened. They fear for their safety because they don't understand it. Whereas if Justice Gorsuch and I are looking at that situation, we'd say, well, a reasonable person would understand the educational context of that. So how could the student think of it?
1: And when there's a back and forth about well, well, for any number of reasons, that doesn't make sense as an example. And then she
2: she makes it really clear. Justice Thomas talked about changing attitudes. Maybe it's the case that nowadays people would be more sensitive to that, and and people would say a reasonable, you know, black college student sitting in that classroom would interpret that as. Threats, you know, that might materialize into actual physical harm. A black student in the
1: classroom that you know the professor intends for this to be a, a lesson about how horrible this was, but the black student doesn't understand that and perceives it as a as a threat to them. And then there you have it, right? Not not it wasn't enough for the oral arguments to express so much to, to trivialize and to express contempt for the for the harm of stalking altogether. They also go in to say, and let us just be clear about how the real problem today and the real issue today is not stalking, it's sensitivity. It's, it's just how darn sensitive people are, especially Black students who just don't get it, or stalking victims who are worried that they're going to be killed because they, they have been sent thousands of messages suggesting that someone is following them without their consent. So it is, it is it is this moment where it's clear that at least some members of the court want to make a statement about something that has nothing to do with this case. And in doing so, make sure that they manage to discredit and offer caricatures of the oversensitive, uh, hypothetical Black student. When, you know, there were plenty of non-hypothetical examples, as we've just discussed, that they could have used to explore the concept of hypersensitivity. And maybe, for that matter, if you were a serious person trying to think about the implications for stalking, to talk about the hypersensitivity of... These people who insist that if you have laws that prohibit stalking, people won't be able to say what they really feel. That if we want to talk about an increase in sensitivity, let's talk about this constant drumbeat of how men in particular need more and more and more space to say more and more and more troubling, harmful things and never face any consequences for it. They can't face any consequences for it. And if that means that women have to essentially be handed a life sentence of terror— well, so be it, because their speech and their uh, expression is just more important.
0: Yeah, there's a moment where I think Justice Kagan lifts up this idea, Marianne, like, what is the high-value speech that is being chilled here? Um but by and large, it does seem as though there's such an intense thumb on the scale of how terrifying it would be to be the guy who wants to stalk and harass a woman and not know where the line is, imagine, and almost no solicitude for the recipient of just buckets and buckets and buckets of vitriol and legitimately, I think there's no way to read, as you say, in the aggregate, these thousands of emails and not say, holy cow, he's watching me. He knows where I am and he's following me. And no regard for the chilling, not just of her speech, as you say, but her full-on retreat from public life. And it's an amazing, for me, example, and you've flicked at this, but I want to pull on it one more time. From justices like Justice Alito, who, you know, last year gave a speech where he was attacking journalists and scholars, without naming them, who criticized the court and the idea of the shadow docket. From Justice Alito, who said, as you noted, that as a result of the Dobbs leak, justices could be killed. And it's an amazing thing to have this performance of thin skin for me, but not for thee. Um, and how gendered that became. Yes. And reinforced,
1: I would say, rightly, on some level, right, th- there's a version of this up to a point that makes some kind of sense, that you would think that if the Supreme Court now actually, maybe more than it ever had to in the past, has to deal with the possibility of someone being angry with them or obsessed with with them and might mean them harm, that this could drive home for the court what it might be like to be a victim of stalking, right? The difference being that victims, that your average victim of stalking doesn't have um, security, that she's not going to be able to invoke a multi-million-dollar system of constant security. She's just going to be left to her own devices so that when you see Chief Justice Roberts issuing the year-end report, he focuses on threats to the judiciary and talks about how important it is that we passed new legislation and applauds new legislation that would protect judges' data so that they won't be subjected to these kinds of threats, which that is, that is all good so far as it goes, but it goes no farther. He concludes by saying the only way that we can support the rule of law is by assuring judges' safety, because a judicial system, he says, cannot and should not live in fear. But when it comes to average citizens, especially women on the receiving end of abusive, terrifying, objectively terrifying content and conduct and expression, the answer is yes, but you all have to live in fear. Judges cannot live
0: in fear, but everyone else is consigned to that fate. There's one more beat on the Anthony Alonis case. Phil Weiser, the attorney general from Colorado, made note in his argument that when the court kicked it away or at least inscrutably solved it for nobody, Anthony Alonis comes back. Well, the court might look at Alonis, who is reconvicted uh, on who's just recently reconvicted for convict for okay. threatening uh, assistant U.S. attorney, his ex-wife and his ex-girlfriend he was sentenced to (laughs) 12 and a half years in federal prison for stalking a prosecutor (laughs) in this case, as well as his former uh, wife and girlfriend. So even the case that is emblematic of the court screwing it up, they got wrong.
1: Yeah. So he was actually sentenced just a a few months ago, but you know, what I really think needs to be underscored here is the the kind of timeline, right? That, and, and a part of this that we maybe haven't touched on completely, which is, The the kind of uh, valorization of a certain kind of abuser as a kind of free speech hero, which is really one of the, the major effects of the Alanis case, even though it didn't turn out to be a First Amendment case. So in this case, even though they decided on statutory grounds, and even though it ultimately has no impact on the original sentence for Alanis for those threats, because... When it goes back on remand, the court says, look, whether you use a negligent standard or any other kind of standard, he would have been convicted anyway. So this is harmless error. Nothing changes. What did change was that Alonis himself was self-identifying at that point as a free speech hero. And as soon as he got out of prison, he begins harassing—well, actually, I shouldn't say that. While he's still in prison, he is sending communications to the prosecutor in that case, continuing to send threatening communications to his ex-wife— and then adding um, one of his ex-girlfriends to his list of victims as well. And this goes on for years, and he does it openly on social media. He has a Twitter account where he's bragging about it, saying, I was vindicated by the Supreme Court. I am a free speech hero. I can do what I want. The next case, my next case is going to be about stalking, and the next case after that is going to be about revenge porn. I am going to show that there's a free speech defense for all of these things because I am the hero. And so he's conducting this behavior. Nothing about his time in federal prison has deterred him from going right back to terrifying and stalking women in his life and and anyone else that he becomes obsessed with. And so, yes, so that he's now uh, been uh, convicted of stalking charges, so not threats this time, but stalking, because it seemed pretty clear to the jury that um, the stalking charge, which does require intent to cause distress, it was absolutely clear to the jury that that was what he intended. No matter how much he tried to say, no, no, I'm just, I'm just testing the First Amendment. But who knows, right? I mean, the the case may get appealed. It might go back before the court. But the point of this is, when it, we are talking about the actual impact on victims, on your everyday victims who don't have 24-hour security and don't have the privilege of uh, money or or resources to protect themselves. The only thing that stops stalkers in those cases or give these victims even a little bit of relief is if they are incapacitated for a period of time so that they cannot communicate and they cannot stalk these victims. As soon as they get out, so many of these stalkers just go right back to doing it. So the ex-wife in this case has now been subjected to, what, a decade of stalking and harassing behavior, and she has to listen To the legitimacy of this, to listen to this person who is stalking her saying, I'm not stalking you, I'm engaging in First Amendment free expression. Now take that direct line to this case, and Counterman is saying basically the same thing. Coles Whalen had to go through the whole process of, first of all, filing these charges against Counterman, having to go through the grueling procedure of a trial there where the attorney for Counterman investigated every aspect of her life tried to find dirt on her from anyone that he could to try to discredit her in the in the courtroom. And then she finally gets some relief to see that, well, he has been convicted. He is, at least for this period of time, not going to be able to terrify her and think that it's behind her and start to put her life back together. And then what happens? He appeals. And the Supreme Court says, you know what? Yeah, we definitely should we should make a federal case out of this. And now she has to listen as in open court, um, the highest court in the land, take this seriously, that this man that has basically cost her her life's dream. We have to talk about how much the real danger here is, and the real harm here is to people like Counterman, who might not be able to feel free enough to speak the way that they want to. That's what she has to endure.
0: One of the confusing elements of this case, and it seems so many of these cases, is the conflating of the free speech and the stalking rules because we're analyzing this as a true threat case, but it's, ultimately also a stalking case, and I think it's very confusing. I know there's an amicus brief in this case about this, but is there a way to analyze this by pulling those things apart so that we're not thinking of it as a speech case but as a conduct case? That
1: would be a much more sensible thing to do, right?
0: The 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 most straightforward way to
1: deal with this case is to say, why are we trying to shoehorn a stalking case into a true threats exception? Uh, because, as, as is argued in, in the amicus brief you're referring to, these are separate issues, right? Stalking is a course of conduct, and you cannot get a conviction for stalking for a, um, a stray remark that is tossed off on the internet or anywhere else. That's not a stalking case. There's no way that you could build a stalking case on the basis of some remark that someone made offhandedly to someone else. And so, so many of the hypotheticals that were used in support of Counterman and by Counterman himself were just so so patently in bad faith to say oh yes someone could just say a teenager during a you know a, a video game uh, might say something that i'm going to kill you and then he's going to he's going to go to jail as if that would ever plausibly be considered a stalking case the answer is it couldn't because stalking requires a course of conduct the problem though is the supreme court the supreme court saying in uh, in cases like us v stevens if you're going to justify or try to to defend against a first amendment challenge to a law you have to fit it basically into one of these categories now when they said that many scholars at the time said that's that's not correct as a statement of law not a forget about whether one agrees with that as a normative matter that's not descriptively accurate of what the supreme court has done up to that point but but in that case and and you know sort of recycled every time this comes up is that same idea If you're going to respond successfully to a challenge, you have to say it's one of these categories, or you have to invite the court to say it's a brand new category that was not recognized before. But every court is terrified of doing that because the the Supreme Court has made clear that they would look at that with tremendous skepticism. So that's why we're getting this weird conversation about why stalking as a law, has to be defended as a true threats exception to the First Amendment, which is an absurd way of having to do this. But that's the position that the Supreme Court has left us in.
0: So so this is where I hear you harmonizing perfectly with your friend and uh, frequent co-author Danielle Citron, who came on the show just a few weeks ago and talked about uh, the YouTube and Twitter cases uh, through the lens of oh my God, the justices just don't understand how the internet works they don't understand how cases that are a hundred years old that come from a time that is in no way analogous to the moment we are in and then they just persistently get it wrong because they're applying these categories that they, Both don't apply, but that they cannot understand the scope of the problem. It feels as though you're saying some version of, uh, look, we're living in a moment in which people are being shot for picking up their siblings at the wrong house. They're being shot for going to fetch a basketball uh, that rolled next door. We are not living in a moment where uh, the kinds of exceptions and laws and thoughts that we had about people and violence and society and uh, any of the, the ways in which we live in fear can be mapped onto the technology and the law. And I guess here I have to note because I've just said it guns, uh, the presence of guns and violence from 100 years earlier.
1: Right, uh, well, one perspective is to say they don't get it. The other perspective is to say, "Oh, they get it, and it's ex- it's it's operating exactly as it should that this is not a this is not a bug. it's a feature that is if if there if the underlying view here, not the one that is said in polite society, but the underlying view here is that fear is good if it's if it's happening to the right sorts of people and it's bad if it's happening to the wrong sorts of people, then really everything here is fairly consistent, right that Uh, up until this point, certain members of our society never had to be afraid, not only for their physical safety, but also didn't have to be afraid of being criticized. They didn't have to worry about being excluded. They didn't have to be worried about being made fun of. Their integrity was never going to be challenged. And now a little bit, they have to worry about that. And I would say not to any kind of extent that people who are not white and male and wealthy have to, but but they are having to face some sorts of criticism. And suddenly that has become the most important issue. So yes, you can have uh, uh, members of the the most um, consequential court in the land, raising the issue of hypersensitivity uh, with straight faces and not thinking about how hypersensitive of a society we are in which, as you say, there are people sitting in their homes who have really never faced any kind of challenging or deadly situation who have been so pumped full of propaganda and um, anger and resentment towards other people and suspicion that if someone knocks on their door and they don't recognize them, their first impulse is to get up and shoot them. And the one of the many, many self-defeating things about this way of looking at the world or choosing not to see the world is to think that it's not going to come for you too at some point, right? That we're making this world as dangerous for everyone. Everyone's less safe. And Let's let's start with physical safety, because if you think you're going to get shot in the face, there are just a lot of things you're never going to be able to say, to say nothing of things you could do or or be. And if we are serious, even a little bit, about protecting freedom of expression um, in any kind of meaningful sense, we'd have to start there to say, are people safe? Or do they have to worry that they're going to get killed for saying the wrong thing or for not saying what someone wants them to say Or for not letting them assume that they're entitled to our attention and and, uh, allowing themselves to insert themselves into our lives. That has, if you are a serious person, if you are a serious court that cares about free expression, those are things you would have to contend with.
0: Professor Marianne Franks is president of the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative, dedicated to combating online abuse and discrimination. She's professor of law and Michael R. Klein Distinguished Scholar Chair at the University of Miami. And she co-authored a brief, in this case, siding with the state of Colorado. Her most recent book is The Cult of the Constitution, Our Deadly Devotion to Guns and Free Speech, her upcoming book is Fearless Speech. And Marianne, as somebody who is about to start yet another day of being a woman on the internet, uh, I thank you for all of your work, incredible, tireless work, trying to help people understand the ways in which we keep replicating free speech regimes that don't actually make us all free to speak. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in, and thank you so much for your letters and questions. You can always keep in touch at amicus at or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Podcast at Slate, and Ben Richmond is our senior director of operations. We'll be back with another episode of Amicus in two short weeks.